All right, you ready? Ready. Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPAGIN. We are very excited today. Um, I'm Peter Liu. I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist from Nation One Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, and I'm joined by probably my favorite co-host out of the other three, Dr. Tamara Hajat. Yeah, she's a pediatric gastroenterologist from Cincinnati Children's in Cincinnati, Ohio. There you go. I said it. How are you? What? I am doing good. I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm your favorite co-host. Yeah, yeah don't, don't tell the rest of them. Um, no, no, no. Anyway. Just uh, the whole NASMICA <laughs> society will know. Uh, I'm doing good. How are you, Peter? Good, good. You know, I have personally been um, thinking back fondly about this interview that we did with Dr. Kelson. Mostly because mm-hmm. it includes a discussion about ice cream and um, our favorite ice creams. Mm-hmm. So, all right, tomorrow, what is your favorite ice cream make and model, like company or brand and flavor? So, my favorite flavor. Oh, oh, okay. I've got a good one. Okay. And this is going to be uh, very surprising to everybody. But there's uh, Godiva ice cream. Uh-huh. They have dark chocolate ice cream. It's made by Godiva? It is. What's that? It's made by Godiva? Yes. Oh. It's made at like one of the Godiva shops. It's really good. I love that ice cream. It's like dark chocolate. It's not sweet. But <sighs> um, but I have to say, that's one of my favorite. How it's about you, bad. Peter? But I, I got to like follow up. So like Godiva doesn't even make. It's like... a. That's like a side product for them. You still it think is, it's the best it's... ice cream in the world, like in your life? Yes. Wow. Okay. That's and I a ate a lot of statement. ice cream. It's like soft serve. So I love soft serve ice cream huh. and it's soft serve. And I don't like it's, I don't want to make this as a promotion for good times. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is so sponsorships good. Sponsorships are welcome. But yeah. Man. Okay. Uh-huh. I just feel like, I mean, that's like, you know, Mercedes Benz, they also make jackets. That's like your favorite jacket in the world. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's like not even what they really make. Oh god, but okay, it's related. Yes, the, the chocolate is in the. All right. Yes, yeah, so the Godiva makes chocolate, and their dark chocolate ice cream is wonderful. I mean, I definitely, I definitely thought you were gonna say Greater since you're in Cincinnati, but I guess agree. You know, Greater's is really not the best ice cream in the world. It's actually Jenny's. Jenny's, uh-huh. a Columbus mm-hmm. original uh, mm-hmm. from Columbus native Jenny mm-hmm. Bauer Britton, I think is her name. I wow. butchered that. But um, I mean, tomorrow you've had you've had Jenny's before, right? I haven't. What? No. Oh my god. I've not I had Jenny's swear before. On air or whatever this is, but uh, okay. Well, you sh- you have to get some like immediately. I'm sure they have Jenny's ice cream shops in Cincinnati. Not shops, but there are. There's no shops. Um, no. There's got. There's now Jenny's ice cream shops in like where I grew up in Los Angeles, like in my neighborhood. Really? Uh, Maybe there is. Like and I've never Plaza, the Colum- huh. the Calabasas Commons. <laughs> yeah. Um. Anyways, okay. So Jenny's ice cream, it's the best. They have like very unique flavors, and without a doubt, the best one is called Brambleberry Crisp. No, no, no. 
brown butter <laughs> almond brittle. Yeah, I think that's the best. Brown butter almond. Those are the almond? two. Yeah, brown butter almond brittle and brambleberry crisp. They're hard to say. What is brambleberry crisp? What does it have in um, it? I don't actually know if a brambleberry is a real berry, but there's some kind of berry in there. Uh, maybe it's a brambleberry, but I'm not a fruit expert. I don't eat fruit. <laughs> but it's your favorite ice cream, Peter. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's some kind of berry in there. Maybe it's a brambleberry. That's a real berry. All right, let's move on. Okay. Do we have any NASPGAN related announcements? We do. We do. So the technology committee is going to start up a Twitter chat. Ooh. So this is like yeah. top secret. Um, we can't announce the details yet, but Not there's an official Twitter chat coming uh-huh. headed by uh, several people in the social media subcommittee, including Dr. Ross Maltz, Dr. Kevin Watson, and Dr. Tamar Hajat is also involved in this. I uh, am so, everywhere. <laughs> yeah. There's several. Anyways. So more to come, but yes. Yes. And Val Sounds is going to be part of it. Yeah. 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 So we may so, coordinate um, some stuff. We'll have some guests from Bow Sounds on that chat and we can discuss episodes from Bow Sounds. Yes. So look out for that. A lot of exciting stuff to come. Yeah. All right. So today we're going to talk about very early onset IBD. It is uh, a very interesting topic that we're seeing more and more often. And there's a lot of research involved in very early onset IBD. So we're excited. Our guest today is Dr. Judith Kelson. Yeah. So we were very lucky to have her on the show. Dr. Kelson, she is the program director of the VEO IBD clinic. She's a pediatric gastroenterologist um, at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She's also an assistant professor at the Perlman School of Medicine at UPenn. And she's also the Richard and Anne Frankel Chair in Gastroenterology Research at CHOP. So super accomplished. Yeah, it was awesome to talk to her. Very inspiring how she like created a program um, at a like like relatively early, mid, you know, part of her career when everything first began. So and she was Super very impressive. fun to talk to. Mostly because she, she is... loves coffee and ice cream. <laughs> That's true. Yes. <laughs> no. And also the stuff about me, uh, of course. Yeah, yeah. And then her and I want to open up a shop, a coffee <laughs> shop. <laughs> oh, that's right. Coffee and ice cream shop. Coffee and ice cream yeah. and cupcake shop. <laughs> so listen all about it in this episode of Foul Sounds. Yep. All right. On to all the right. show. On to the show. Welcome, Dr. Kelson, to Bell Sounds. Thank we're, you. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you. This is this is a very interesting topic. It's fun. We're going to talk about very early onset IBD. Before we start, for our listeners who don't know you, how would you describe yourself in one sentence? I would say that I'm actually like a pretty simple person who like I'm super happy just hanging out with my family. I think the kids are the funniest people in the universe. And as long as I'm caffeinated and fed, I feel like things are good. I always tell the first year fellows when we first meet, we can do anything today as long as I'm caffeinated <laughs> and we have enough coffee and good coffee. I guess I'm a little snobby. But otherwise I mean ah. I think yeah, I'm very snobby about coffee. Oh, tell us more. Well, I mean my fave is La Cologne. I mean I live oh. in Philly and obviously I'll drink Starbucks, but I'm not someone who will just walk into any place yeah. and get coffee. It has to be insanely strong. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> Several hits like in order to keep me going. <laughs> so you're like the the doctor's lounge coffee is not going to cut it. That's like we don't have a doctor's lounge, ah. but like the coffee in the cafeteria. No, yeah. no offense. There's a coffee cart right outside the cafeteria, and God bless them. They know what I want, and like I don't even have to say anything. <laughs> I could be the back of the line, and they just see me, and I'm like, yep, yeah, I'm here. I love it. They're waiting for me. That's like the best joy I have. And it's just sitting there waiting for me. Oh, I have some follow-up questions about this because uh, I sure. love coffee. I love I just coffee like, too. Yeah. I just the use my Smell is enough to make me happy. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> but then like, I feel like some purists are like, you can't add cream and sugar, you know, otherwise it kind of like masks the underlying flavor. Yeah. What are your thoughts about that? I mean, I feel like, that's taking things too far. Yeah. I I agree with the purists that, and I hope I don't offend anybody. I don't like flavor coffee. Oh, oh, yeah. I don't like Except it either. Except like mm-hmm. as a um, snack, like you know, like a peppermint mocha as uh, part of my yeah. snack. Right. But that it's is not, not your coffee. That won't be my afternoon caffeine. Yeah, that it's will a dessert, be a essentially. snack, right? Yeah, like, it's yeah. not. It's food essentially. So I don't I like French vanilla or hazelnut coffee. Or yeah. I hate to be mean. If people love that, go for it. <laughs> but but I definitely, and I do have friends who just drink it black. I definitely like milk in mine. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's still pure. It's mm-hmm. bringing that's up true. the essence of the bean. If yeah. You know. I completely agree. I like cream or milk in mine. Yeah. I yeah. learned this new. Uh, Americano is actually, it is my favorite. It's recently my favorite because it's different from like a drip coffee or a regular coffee. And I was like, when I first tried Americano, like, this is amazing. This is going to be my favorite. It's a little extra something, something. It's not, it's (laughs) a little more like power to it. Yeah. 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 It's, it's way better. It has to be very strong, very Mm -hmm. smooth, if you will. Excellent. I feel like we could continue this conversation for a long, long time. But if you want to go into ice cream too, I can give you a whole speech on what I think is the purest and smoothest, but we can save that for the end too. No, let's talk about it now. What do you feel like is kind of the pure, like ideal ice cream? It depends on the situation. Uh Like if Mm -hmm. you just need a a moment just to have pure, unadulterated, fresh, smooth chocolate, great. Mm -hmm. I'm a chocolate Mm -hmm. person. Mm-hmm. I am a um, chocolate person too. Yeah. I mean, we're connecting on different levels I mean, here. I could totally, we could spend a whole day just eating. It'd be fantastic. Yes. Uh, and drinking coffee. But then like a little palate cleanser. I love chocolate chip mint. Uh-huh. Like a little. Yeah. That's a good one. And then uh-huh. in terms of brands, I like the ones that are like kind of purist. You know, um, yeah. I mean, I do love, who doesn't like cognac does, I guess. Yeah, or the one with yeah. only five ingredients, whatever. It's a classic. Uh, but there's some brands here in Philly that are like freshly made. And then that Jenny's ice cream just moved into Philly. Have really? you guys ever had it? It's from Columbus. That's oh yeah, uh, it's oh, that is off the hook. I mean, that oh, is ridiculous. Yeah. Oh my god, love like, Jenny's. Is it that yeah. good? Like oh. the Mexican chocolate. It's yes, addictive and a little bit and of it's spice. So, yeah, oh, yeah. So and the peanut butter one, you get protein plus chocolate. Yeah. Like, Wait, tomorrow you have never had healthy. Jenny's. I think so. I've it's never an Ohio had institution. We have graders oh, have here. To. Yeah, the classic. No, but you don't even need to have it in your city because they mm-hmm. will deliver it to you. Yeah. So I met Jenny's, if you will. Oh, my friend um, Maura uh, Conrad, who works with me, saves my life usually. She, for my birthday last year, sent me a whole thing of like different flavored Jenny's a year ago, and I was hooked. Like, yeah. you can continue wow. to get it online. You need not travel. Oh man, oh, yeah. Delicious. It's so. On a random side note, as a Jenny's fan, so have you guys heard of this podcast called "How I Built This"? 
It's from NPR. No. Basically, it's like oh, different. Oh, yes, I do. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, it's awesome. And so actually, yeah. Jenny Britton Bauer of Jenny's has an episode where she talks about when she was in college is mixing flavors <gasps> and like starting an ice cream stand in like one of our local markets. And then now she's like an international, you know, superstar. I have to listen to that. Oh, I do yeah. say that if I ever quit medicine, uh, I would do an ice cream store that served coffee. Oh, yeah. That would be... And I, I think would I'd do be very good at it. I think you could join me. I think I'd yes! be great. <laughs> I would love that. I well, can be like a I taste can do tester. coffee and cupcakes and we yeah. can have books can, in it. It could have everything in it. I mean, you could have ice cream and, and cupcakes. I think it'd be, that would be, I think people would love that opportunity yes. to match two different kinds of things. They're always, they're always isolated. That's yeah, let's true. do it. Yeah. And then like books where people oh can my sit God, down adorable, and read. Actually. Yeah, I, that could be a movie. You know, books would add a really lovely touch. I like that. Let's do it. Oh my God, that'd be beautiful. <laughs> books on the side, yes. ice cream. Guys, God. this is a uh, GI podcast. So <laughs> sorry. But sorry. we have to move on. <laughs> the second question cool. is actually not GI related either. <laughs> but speaking of books, I, I personally don't read that much. So this is actually a question about books podcast, TV shows, movies, anything that you've read, listened to, or watched recently that you'd recommend to us? Sure. Well, there's different... So I am obsessed with Morning Joe. So I start my morning with Morning Joe and it's a podcast too. So when I walk to work, I listen to it or the daily when I walk to work, Mm -hmm. I listen to one or the other. And then other things watching, my friend got me into BBC Mysteries, which are phenomenal there's a like a wide range there's the cop shows there's shows with just like random people who are solving mysteries which are phenomenal and i have to say american tv is not amazing but this is really phenomenal so that's like a tv show tv series it's their variety that you can get on amazon i'll plug it for you everyone in america amazon or netflix yeah. there's, there's a variety of masterpiece and like Grandchester is a really funny mystery kind of thing where a cop and a priest are solving murders okay. and then there's another murder one that i think is hysterical and then the Durrells is actually just a about a, it's a comedy kind of thing about a family which is i mean the acting's phenomenal and mm. it's just really good i mean i've been i watched a few episodes of succession but it's so like dark i have to like yeah you know, wash it out <laughs> with them in that BBC or Ted, Ted, yeah. what's, um, Ted Lasso. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yes. Like, and I have to cleanse myself with that. After exactly it. what you mean. It's yeah. Just, I have to clean it up. It's just yeah. so dark. Succession is yeah. just, there's just not, I've never watched it. succession. It's too much for me. Uh, it's, I mean, I can watch a few, like I really like it. And then like, it gets really too, too much. Yeah. See, I watch documentaries about the mob and the mob. Yeah. <laughs> oh, a little mob stuff is good too. Yes, I there's do a the good mob stuff. Yeah. There's a cool uh, documentary about uh, the mafia in New York in the 1970s, Ooh. 80s. I think you sent it out to us. I Wasn't sent it, called it just, out to it everybody. I'm like, you should definitely watch oh, this. I'm so into that. It's called The Fear City, New York versus the Mafia. Mm-hmm. And Ooh, it's, like it's fantastic. It's on Netflix. Oh it's fantastic. It has like... Writing it down. Yes, <laughs> and it has real images... It's amazing. I'm oh, watching so it for hard. the second time. Wow. <laughs> really? All right, I'm in. I always think every store f- is like a front for the mafia yeah. or the mob. Every time we walk by a new store, I'm like, hello. I know. <laughs> Especially because you know some of them just like, how could this ever make money? But it's still here. How is this still open? Yeah. Every other yeah. store on this block is out. Why are you yeah. open? So uh, moving right. on to our topic. <laughs> This is really fun. (laughs) So can you tell us a little bit about how you developed your interest in IBD and specifically in very early onset IBD? 
Sure. I mean, I first loved IBD and I, I just I do love it. Uh, when I was in med school, you know, just like in second year, we had a course on it, then third year. And then it's um, no secret, like I have Crohn's and several of my family members do, but I was oh. diagnosed after I actually loved IBD. Oh. Like it's sort of a beautiful like integration of a variety of different disciplines. You have immunology, you have genetics, you have microbiome, and it's such a complex disease that you can help people. And you can hopefully, hopefully make people better. But it's constantly like a mystery, you know? It's fascinating. And you happen to each component of it, I think. And it's nice to have people who have different niches within IBD so you can kind of work together. I also love about IBD. It's like a team sport, particularly VEO, I would say, is actually that to the max. Towards the end of fellowship, it actually wasn't a disease process that we were accustomed to or even knew about, right? Like before 2009, none of us even knew it existed. And so as a fellow, I didn't, you know, really, I was really focused on the microbiome and I love that and I still do. And then we noticed there were little kids more and more and more and more being diagnosed with the disease and their disease was really just quite severe. And it was just kind of like a whirlwind of just like badness that couldn't be stopped. And then around that time, you know, the New England Journal paper with the first gene defect identified the Alzheimer's receptor. And I remember like walking in the hallway and we were talking about it being like, oh my God, we're going to have to like rethink about how we do things. Mm-hmm. I was working with Bob Altisano, who is one of my mentors and favorite people. And I remember we were talking, we we're like, we have to just change what we're doing. Like, this is different. This is not going to happen. And I was working in a lab with microbiome stuff at that time, but I just was like, just so drawn to it. And I just felt we had to study it more and figure it out. And that's really how I just got into it. It was kind of very organically it happened. I just fell in love with it. And then I was really lucky, lucky, lucky to have the support here of Bob and uh, David Piccoli. And Peter Mamala, who just was like, go for it. One day, he's like, you should just, just stop doing what you're, what you're doing now. And we just focus on this. And I just, I just remember we were sitting when Peter said it to me. I was like, okay. <laughs> wow. um, but I'm lucky because like David, you know, I did my, I didn't have a mentor in that. Like I'm not a geneticist or an immunologist, right? So I'm really lucky David and just kind of orchestrated this meeting between me and Nancy Spinner, who's the geneticist and uh, Marcella Devoto, who is a geneticist and an epidemiologist and statistician in genetics. And he kind of like brokered this meeting and I was like, hi, I need help. And I would say this to anybody in training, if I love this area, but I had no help, you know, it's not something you could do alone. And this is also a sign of the best kind of mentor in the universe. Marcella is, you know, as I said, geneticist, and she took me on and she completely selfishly helped me sort of develop this program. And together with another amazing mentor, another woman, Kate Sullivan, who's chief of immunology, because I'm not an immunologist. And so it really started just without a real structure in the beginning, but just trying to understand the genetics of this disease, me as, me as a gastroenterologist and junior as could be and immunology. And then we started developing this program. That is awesome. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. Cause I feel like, sure. you know, for many of us as a younger faculty, lo- looking at someone like you, who is head of like a center, it's like, how did they get from where I am to there? And uh, it's cool to hear like, you know, so obviously a lot of it was you, but also surrounding yourself with people who, you know, were interested yeah. and could carry you forward. And I guess moving on to the topic a little bit more, like as you had, mentioned, you know, you're starting to see this more and more like this very early onset uh, IBD picture. And I feel like many of us are seeing that, you know, all over the country as well. And uh, so as you have shown in a lot of your research, IBD location, progression, response to therapy can be dependent in some degree on age. And so when we're talking about the different types of pediatric onset IBD based on age, what are those categories? How do you split them up? And what, how would yeah. you define very early onset IBD? 
there are many categories. Um, so there's like the neonatal onset, which is literally neonatal, you know, the first few weeks of life. And then infantile, which is probably defined you know, less than two, even okay. if it's less than one, but I probably, the definition is probably less than two. And then we call toddler VEO up until six, so like two to six or, you know, six and younger. And then early onset, we think about being less than 10. And then pediatric is 10 above, sort of. It's the cleanest break. And that early onset is years in between. But they all are a little bit different, right? So neonatal and infantile are probably the most similar for that smaller age. And specific genetic defects that you think about will only occur in that period in the neonatal or infantile. And someone who presents a two-year-old, which is not old, but it's not that gene. Like, it's not it step away. And some of the phenotypes are more common in the very young patients. That doesn't mean to say that there's not monogenic in two to six. There are plenty that are defects in that age range. But I think having a good feel for what's not going to be versus what might be. And, you know, another question that we'll talk about later is, you know, how do you start to smell monogenic when you start to think it might be? I'm sure we can talk about that at a later point. You kind of mentioned monogenic. The uh, genome association studies show that conventional or older onset IBD have a polygenic contribution towards genetic susceptibility to developing IBD. But patients with very early onset IBD might have that monogenic defect, which makes them likely to have a primary immune deficiency, a hyper auto-inflammatory disorder to cause that very early onset IBD. And there's been 50 identified monogenic defects. And I think studies are showing that there might be more. Can you tell us what the main monogenic disorders or defects that we should know about or you recommend that we be aware of? Yeah. And I would say there's actually about 80 already that have been identified. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And, um, you know, it, and there's many more to become identified. I'm sure, you know, some of our limitations are the way that we understand how to recognize the technology that we currently have. So that's going to blossom, you know, exponentially over time. But I would say the ones that every gastroenterologist should know, right, is CGD or chronic granulomatous disease, partially because if you don't figure it out quickly, it could be fatal or catastrophic sequelae. And so that could be autosome recessive or X-linked, and those patients can have a problem with phagocytosis or NATPH complex is any defect in that complex can lead to CGD, but also a, a VEO kind of presentation. So that's one of the most, one that we should all look for. And that can present in the neonatal period. It can present in the toddler period or a little bit later, it might not come to medical attention, even though it's already probably been there. So anybody who we have a suspicion for VEO, and even if it's a baby, you get a DHR immediately to make sure it's not CGD. That's one. XIP is another one that we should all sort of recognize. That's X-linked. Of course, females can carry and have a risk for IBD, but it's X-linked. And so male babies who present with perianal disease or just a bad colitis as a neonate, they should just be screened. And when I say be screened, you're screening everybody um, for immune workup and a genetic workup who you meet. So the screen for the XIP is a is a flow to Cincinnati. Actually, it's a great one that's back very quickly. And actually, they've called me in a few times when it's been positive. They didn't call me last time. <laughs> they just sent me it. <laughs> oh, no. Check up on that tomorrow. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> but that's really quick. Little amount of blood and the turnaround is super quick. And that's a bad one to miss, too, because uh, that can have a sequelae to HLH or other complications. And then IL-10 receptor defect. This is a neonatal situation. This ain't going to show up. 
in the toddler, this is neonatal onset, fishalizing disease, doesn't have to be fishalizing, but often yes, and badness. It's just, you know, very, you're, you're, they're quite sick. And that one you can't, you should not miss either. And a neonate who presents should have the full shebang workup. This is not like no one should be waiting until they're 10 months old. So the neonate who presents gets the whole workup. And then the IL-10 functional stuff sometimes takes a while. There's not many centers that do it. Their sequencing might come back even quicker than the functional tests. Some places could do it super quick, but some can't. And sequencing is so quick these days. But if you have a baby who has perianal or, or neonatal onset, just make sure it's not that. That sequelae could be B cell, large B-cell lymphoma. If that's not trans, so those patients should get transplanted because that complicates and their disease could be horrendous if it's not you know, transplanted either. To follow up on that a little bit, you kind of mentioned some of the signs that would make you worry about a monogenic cause. And a lot of it's also based on age, like you had mentioned, but are there any other specific phenotypic presentations that make you really think about or, or more specific to VOIBD that make you think about sure, a monogenic yeah. problem? Yeah. And I'll just say those are three genes, but there are many more that make me pause and get worried. Those are just the quick three, but there are many others we should all think about. So I don't want to like not give credit to the other ones. So yeah. So the, I mean, the things I think about for monogenic, yes, age of onset, so a neonate or infant, infantile. But again, there are plenty of genes that occur in the toddler years as well. So things such as besides age, severity at the presentation. So those who are really boom is at, out the gate are really quite sick. We worry. Growth is a big one. So we've looked several times at our monogenics and non-monogenics and persistent growth stunting. And I always say this, you know, if they A, present in their toddler years, like t- short stature or a little bit older, stature is huge. There's several gene defects are associated with short stature, immunodeficiencies or the degree of disease. So if they can't regain their growth despite adequate therapy or, you know, or you meet them and the growth is just really, this is just startling. We think monogenic. Location of disease. So, you know, in general, we think about early on VEO as being colonic predominant, but there's plenty of panenteric. And some of that is in the youngest patients, but also some of that is in monogenic. So when we see duodenal, some of the specific signs like villus blunting or atrophy, if you put together the histology, and I would say the histology is super important. We almost always in person go down and review the slides with our pathologist, seeing certain combinations of stuff. So villus blunting atrophy can point to some of those regulatory defects. You can think about IPACs or some of the other ones that can sort of have that signature. Uh, having apoptosis present, you know, older patients can have apoptosis in certain spots that look really ulcerated after many years of disease, but at the diagnostic scope of there's apoptosis, you're thinking this has a specific driver. Sometimes it's um, indicative of an epithelial cell defect, like TT7A is another one that's going to be hard to miss, you know, multiple intestinal atresias. That's, I mean, that should be pretty, it's in your face, that kid is sick. And, but also some of the adaptive immune deficiencies have apoptosis. So putting together histology, I would say there's other findings that I won't go into right now, but growth, severity, and age of onset. And the other thing, the other big thing is other systemic features, other autoimmune features. So if they have a variety of other issues in addition to IBD, or if they come with just a lot of, even it doesn't look like IBD necessarily, they have lots of fevers, they have oral ulcers, they have a baby has a rash that's just not getting better or a child. So other then you start to think there's something else going on. If a baby's admitted more than once for failure to thrive in acidosis, game over, work it out. Mm. 
I mean, a lot of we've seen a lot of kids going back where it's like the fourth admission for diarrhea and vomiting and acidosis. So we sort of say, one, you're done. Yeah. So basically, if it's significant or severe, or there's any other conditions going on, then we kind of think about monogenic. I guess one of my questions is, could very early onset IBD just be IBD? Without being monogenic, in other words? Yeah. Certainly. In fact, we've only found, and I say we as a collective we, as all of us together, GI immunology, you know, max, you'll say 20%. That's the best you'll get that in the best of the studies of their largest that are monogenic. And so the other 80% don't have a known defect. And I would say part of that is our current limitations in identifying those other defects. We're really good at finding things that we've already found before. But a novel defect, when you look at someone's exome, when you're going through the data, it could be a very long, long journey from seeing that variant to confirming its pathogenicity and being causative. So there's a, we're just missing a lot. But there's plenty of patients who are either oligogenic, where there's not necessarily one gene, but maybe several genes in the same pathway, or even polygenic, where it's just young and they had that hit young and it just led to that cascade of that immature immune system and the, that microbial community structure is not yet developed and it went haywire by that two immature structures seeing something. And it kind of unleashed with it. You don't have that genetic susceptibility, but it's not monogenic. So certainly I would say that there's plenty that's not monogenic that we know so far. And another follow-up question on that. Does monogenic run in families similar to polygenic IBD? Yeah. So we always ask family history, always. And the right questions, right? Because they're not going to like tell you, yes, we have severe immunodeficiency in our family. Right. <laughs> you have to kind of like lead it. You know, as you have to say, when your family been admitted for reasons you don't get, anyone require lots of antibiotics, you know, you want to kind of get, is there some, because it's very frequently, if there's a known genetic defect within a family, which like, for instance, XIP, when the males have something or mild 10, like the consanguinous families, that's how it was initially found. Some of the LRBA or CTLA-4 can be within families, the family might not recognize that the other members have it, right? Who, who are still okay. When they already come with a family history, but it's given to you like in a little, with a bow on top, that's exceedingly rare to get that little bow where you kind of are done. You already know the situation. So you have to like draw them out. And I would say very early onset IBD who are not monogenic, the polygenic ones, we'll call it, even though I think we shouldn't say polygenic because we just, I think we've I know we fail at finding them, right? I think there's going to be way more. There's a strong family history, I would say, even more than the, than in the monogenics because lots of de novo in the monogenics. Interesting. And I guess going back a little bit, so you mentioned kind of the, the things that we should watch out for that would raise our suspicion for a monogenic cause. But I guess in general, for someone who is being diagnosed as having very early onset IBD by scope, histology, imaging, ruled out other kinds of GI disorders that can cause similar symptoms, so what specifically you do you do? Like what is your usual workup kind of looking for something more a monogenic or a primary immunodeficiency? Yeah. And again, I would say for the VEO workup, it's a little bit different than pediatric and adult onset and really as a team. Mm -hmm. This is not a one-man sport, right? Or women's sport, I should say. This is a team event. And so we're lucky that we have uh, immunology, rheumatology, so for VEO, the workup is how I kind of think about it is we do our IBD evaluation, meaning that we'll get our labs, 
scope and imaging and the imaging depends on the age, right? You're not going to intubate every baby for an MRE. I just want to make sure right. we're not doing that. There are plenty of other modalities such as ultrasound that's really blossomed. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then concurrently, as we're getting the blood for the screening for IBD, we start the immune workup. So if it's you know a baby and we're meeting them uh, for the first time and we have suspicion for IBD, as we're drawing the CBC, CNP, CRP, we'll get already looking at lymphocyte subsets, DHR, 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 and already moving the immunoglobulins as a unit. You're not going to check that crate yet. I mean, you can, but then recheck it, right? And you're not going to get titers. But so we do the IBD workup and then the white count or, you know, the regular labs might point you somewhere. If you are doing a regular workup and the white count's insane and the ESR, CRP are off the hook or the platelets are really high, you're going to think about a camp of immune deficiencies or auto-inflammatory disease, some of those gene defects in RC4, XIP, or MVK, or you know, familiar with term fever, a whole camp of whole camp of stuff just by the before you even do the immune workup, right? And then the immune workup, the screen that we do immediately when we meet you, if you're the right age, immunoglobulins and titers, plus or minus titers, lymphocyte subsets, the DHR. And then the story will guide us further on what other immune subsets we might want to look at. So like I mentioned before about the XIP flow, we very much are not going to wait for genetic testing if we have a high suspicion. Even if the exome or the targeted panel will come back four weeks or something, we're not, we don't have the luxury of time in yeah. some of these cases, right? Like they're super sick. They're, in, they're on your floor. You're, this is expedited situation. And so the flow will come back super quick. I will say we have rapid whole exome here at CHOP and I'm sure other places too. So if someone's really sick, we don't do a regular genetic testing. This is, you know, and these are big decisions you make with your institution. Each Everyone has your own way of doing it. But we just recently did rapid West and we're, because we were high suspicion of a monogenic and the kid, the child did have a monogenic and then get transplanted actually next week. Oh, wow. Like, you know, some of these things you don't wait. Right. And like getting cytokines, people always ask me, when do you send for cytokines? Again, this is why I say work with a team. If you think it's that auto-inflammatory situation or you're concerned about interferon signaling and you might want to target that therapeutically, you can learn a lot from each different test that you're doing. And there might be a mild abnormality in the lymphocyte subsets. Maybe the NK cells are a little bit off or the T cells are bodily low. And that will open the door to the next set of labs that you're going to get. So there's a long answer to that, wow. but it's kind of no, that's... as the story unfolds, you'll do more. Yeah. So do you recommend, for example, if I do have time to send the whole exon sequencing, for example, in a place that doesn't have it and it's going to send it as a mailing lab to send the whole exon sequencing? Maybe if you can yeah. kind of elaborate a little bit yeah. further on that. So I'd say in terms of what kind of genetic sequencing to do, so there's targeted panel. You know, We have one that's 98 genes. There's other commercial laboratories that have the panel. I would say if you know pretty concretely that this is going to be a known gene that you've already been published before and you have the luxury time for the targeted panel to come back, then you should send that. If the panel is negative and you still have a high suspicion for a genetic defect or like in our case, frequently we'll go right to whole exome trio, by the way. So you want, you want the trio so you can get the parents because looking at just the patient is really unhelpful. You don't know if it's inherited, if it's 
really closeted, right? So, so if something's really concerning or if it's not on the panel, then you do whole exome. And then it, there is a role and it's going to be a much bigger role is for whole genome. So whole exome is phenomenal, but it has limitations. So genes that are in the regulatory region or it's um, not covered well by WES or if it's intronic or structural, some of the structural ones are not in the whole exome. So Certain big deletions where you can't pick up great on whole exome. If you have a good pipeline, you can, but it just takes some more effort. And then I also say who's reading your exome. So here we have a clinical exome and the team, we work with them on our patients. So it's kind of easier. And then our research protocol, we do trios and everybody we meet. And our bioinformatician, who's phenomenal, Nordzawani, just as VEO, and you know, we have a certain pipeline. So you know, very frequently, if you do whole exome commercially and, and the person who, and the team who's doing the bioinformatics, they don't know what to look for. So VEO is a complex disease, right? So it's not one of those Mendelian diseases that have been well studied that you can say we're someone, you know, eye problem that you could, the known genes or epilepsy or something. But epithelial defects, which are not, you know, it's a different camp. You know, if you have a patient who has severe rashes or hearing deficit, other hair issues, nail abnormalities or teeth, they might not, that might not be in the pipeline of a commercial exome, just we may not have told that place what you're looking for. They should call something pathogenic regardless, but we have definitely redone exomes here and found defects just by the pipeline. So I just say, make sure that you're working with the buy-in from, like make sure you're either working with the team and if a negative West comes back, don't close the door. If a negative targeted panel comes back, don't close the door if this is really doesn't smell right. And then do you feel like just as a random question, like, do you feel like, I mean, I think we're, we have the luxury of being like these big institutions for someone out in the community. If they see that kind of presentation, like such early onset, severe symptoms, do you feel like it's worth referring early to like a more specialized center? Yeah. 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 Okay. I mean, and we'll, you know, we get calls many times a day, um, every day. And it's never a bother. It's never, it's never a problem. And I know others feel the same way. Other places that do this, I think that you know, it's a, it does take a lot of resources. It does take a team, and it could have catastrophic outcomes if we don't move quickly. So definitely partner with another center if you don't have those resources. If you don't have immunology, and this happens very often that the immunology places at some institutions either are not familiar with VEO because it's it is a different beast and it really didn't exist prior to 2010 in people's mindset right so definitely partner with the center and everyone in our pediatric GI community is everyone's really nice in general everyone's really happy to work together in general but we're always happy to help and i know other places are too so we'll do the west for free like you don't people should not be hindered by money and i i know I sound really naive saying that. David Bocoli will probably cough just hearing me say that. <laughs> Free care, <laughs> chop, you know, if you guys didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> that might, it's just that if someone's sick, we can figure it out, right? Like we'll do, we'll put it on a protocol. We'll get you here, you know, we'll figure it out. So in one of the papers that you published in IBD in 2020, you showed that uh, patients with fairly early onset IBD have a more severe disease course. They have increased surgical interventions. They have poor growth, kind of similar to what you mentioned up to their presentation. And they're more uh, likely to be refractory to conventional therapies compared to patients with older onset IBD. So um, 
definitely these patients are very challenging to uh, manage and treat. Can you tell us your approach in managing these patients and your thought process on when and what therapy you do? For example, biologics, do you ever do vedolizumab? Do you ever do like anakinra or any of those uh, medications? And then are there specific cytokines that help with the management? Yeah. So the you know, the therapy really depends on the where the evaluation points to us. So uh, as I said earlier, histology and endoscopic evaluation are really important. Although there's like this clonic predominance, there's also panenteric and we view them differently and our therapy approach might be really different on a, on a baby or a toddler who might present with isolated clonic versus panenteric. So we'll approach that differently. The degree of severity of presentation or action test on manifestations, as I said earlier, like the epithelial defects won't respond if you slam them with Remicade, right? They're just because it's not necessarily immediate, although there's some that have both components. So it really depends on the workup. And you asked earlier about cytokines. We look at the cytokine signature. Is there interferon signature or something of that nature? So some of the therapies that we use that are in the box and outside the box. In the box, we do use infliximab or Humira or anti-TNF therapy if it's like a neutrophil predominant disease, right? And a kid presents with even panenteric and bad colonic disease where, you know, we need to move fast and using a biologic in a, in a young child, we're not concerned about. I actually think they're safer than some of the immunomodulators. I don't love using some of the other drugs, I think from a safety perspective, and you've got to stabilize. However, the very young kids very frequently require much higher dosing and frequent dosing to maintain that level because they're sick and probably pharmacokinetics as well. So if you can get a level, a therapeutic level, and maintain that level, you have to work hard to maintain the level. It, it could be shocking. You might have to do Q2 for a while to get a therapeutic level. And don't back down quickly. I definitely have had second opinions or people who, you know, we get them to a level of, I don't know, 12 or something, and then all of a sudden they're Q8 and you've lost it. Game over. Or even if you were at Q2 and you go to Q6, you're don't do that. It's too much of a jump. You're going to have to move slow. So there's a camp where that's a, that's a very effective therapy. And I think before we knew about the levels, we thought infliximab was a fail, but it, in some patients you can maintain. There are many patients where it's not going to help at all. It's the wrong pathway. So we do use intivia or vitalizumab very frequently, even as young as a baby baby. And we actually are publishing that soon particularly because the safety profile, A, B, you know, lipocytic sort of process, it's amenable to it. So even if it's upper tract disease, and it might be a bridge to transplant, or it might be a bridge as we're seeing what's going to happen because the safety profile is so good. And you have to have luxury of time for it to start to work. So you're not, you're not starting it monotherapy in acutely sick person. You could do it as dual, but it's not a monotherapy acutely sick. But certainly if there's lymphocytic driven or colonic predominant disease and you're somewhat stable, we use it. And then in terms of like, we use a lot of serolimus or epimycin and some TAC too. And the TAC really depends. There's two camps of TAC patients, potentially some of those who have more of like the regulatory defects. Those are really good as well as colonic badness. And it's a, it's a bridge. Yes, but on the Kinra or Kanakinumab, and it's like a quick overview, but we definitely use that and that we're publishing now too. So we use that as a, a really nice therapy for auto-inflammatory disease. If, you know, the cytokine panel doesn't typically show you a high IL-1 when you get it, it doesn't necessarily help you. Sometimes it does, but 
fevers, oral ulcers, you know, that sort of phenotype auto-inflammatory, we would certainly enjoy pain. We use a lot of canakinumab. The safety profile is quite good. Anakinra and canakinumab are sort of the same. Anakinra is daily and it's it blocks the receptor alpha and beta and canakinumab blocks just the beta. And usually you're okay with just the beta. And that's could be monthly subcutaneous at home or eight weeks. So that's really good for that. It also could be using IL-10 receptor defects as a bridge to transplant. And so we've certainly have done that as well. And then you asked about other cytokine. So high interferon gamma will use JAK-STAT pathway. Uh, so in the very young patients here, we use a lot more ruxolitinib than TOFA in our little patients. They're different in terms of which stats. So JAK and JAK pathway. So JAK1, JAK2 is more ruxo and you know, one and three are with TOFA. Ruxo seems to be better than the TOFA in that group. And we've had good success with that. It's a wide range. Yeah. So as a uh, lowly motility specialist, is there what, what's like the role for like steroids or enteral therapy, things like that? Or is it pretty much, if it's that severe, they're, it's they're that young, we have to go to the... Yeah. The I mean, well, there's two different things. Um, and first, I know nothing about motility, so it's good to <laughs> that you do, so I can actually bother you about that because that's a whole world. So that's a, <laughs> huge. And so steroids, I don't like it in the very young uh, patients for a variety of reasons. One, like they're probably already immunosuppressed. Sure. Inherently, they're immunocompromised. There are a few gene defects where actually steroids is a good thing to do. And there are some situations where you have to, like as they're progressing to HLH or something. And, but I, I, otherwise, I don't use yeah. it for growth, especially too. Enteral therapy, I love because no matter what, nutrition in this age has to really be optimized. There's other issues that coexist with having a diagnosis at every age of pediatrics, development is affected, right? And so the teenager has their own bag of issues with a new diagnosis. But when a child's learning how to eat or when they're trying to have, you know, we're working on developmental walking, being sick really gets in the way of that. And nutrition in and of itself, malnutrition can lead to immunodeficiency or worsen your immune system's issues and you can't really heal. So it's amazing what optimizing nutrition can do. I mean, you can go from not walking to walking just with nutrition, right? I mean, we've all seen it. So I think nutrition is hand in hand and there are roles for enteral nutrition as primary therapy. There's certainly in VEO a strong role for that. And I'll also say antibiotics we use a lot. So we use triples even more than for older patients, I think. And we use vancomycin, quite honestly, as a monotherapy in some patients too. I mean, I would say the one thing about VEO, if anything I would say today is it's so heterogeneous. It is so patient-specific. There's not one approach and there's not, you have to really look at that individual child, their story, their phenotype, their immunophenotype and genetics, of course, if that's a hit. But in the absence of being a hit, that's okay. What is their signature of their disease? Does it look like a known defect? Make a signature for each patient is sort of how I think about it. What camp do they fall in? What therapy would they be most potentially successful with based on that signature? So even if they don't have a known monogenic, we learn a lot from each gene that's found and the underlying driver of the disease based on that one gene. And you can apply that to somebody in the absence of a defect. If you find a known immune-mediated process, you can find either a signal yeah. or something down in one of, you know, even if they don't find a gene, but there's very something specific or they meet that signature of a known defect, 
you can hit it that way, but be very flexible because if it's not working, back out and move on. But I would also say patience is a virtue, not the one that I have. I'm incredibly impatient. <laughs> but with VO, with therapy, you you have to be patient. I mean, a lot of people burn through a lot of drugs in a very short period of time. So, you know, the problem with VO is they get treated immediately with, let's say, steroids, then they get immunomodulators, then they get a biologic. It's not, they're not better, then they get another biologic, another. It's not going to work immediately. So you have to kind of figure out what's going to work. What signal are you getting that this is eventually going to work? Be very patient. Don't waste that drug. Is there a medication that's contraindicated in a monogenic defect? Yes. Great question. So we do not use uh, anti-DNF therapy for CGD, chronic granulomatous disease, which is why everyone should get DHR. And it's probably not just anti-TNF. I would not advise using many of our immunosuppressive therapies for CGD, get them transplanted. We do stabilize them with IL-1. So we give them canakinumab antibiotics too. They all have to get prophylax, that group, for fungal virus. You know, those work with your immunologist. Don't do this by yourself. And then in terms of other, if you knew someone had XIP, don't give them 6MP. I don't use 6MP at all. I should never, never say never, obviously. I don't. So that could, you know, the, the predisposition for HLH, right? So that's where I'm talking about with with XIP. So any defect that might have a progression to HLH, you would not want to use some of the immunomodulators, particularly 6MP. Other than that, I would say that obviously some of the really significant adaptive immune deficiencies that need transplant, like SCID, so any of those genes, just you can stabilize. Like we have a baby now with SCID who is on, with RAG1 deficiency, who's on tacrolimus bridge to transplant. So you want to make sure that you're working with your immunology team, and I'm sure people are, and they're BMT teams to stabilize and prophylax and keep people safe. If somebody looks like a monogenic and you haven't found it yet, they still might need prophylaxis based on their workup. So definitely work with the immunologist or ID folks, whichever or whoever do this at your institution, because there might be something about that baby that even though you haven't found it, is screaming for prophylaxis. <laughs> it's not safe. So definitely work with your team members. And you had mentioned stem cell transplant several times now and uh, some specific disorders where that is going to be like the ultimate treatment. But is that really just all based on their specific monogenic diagnosis or is there any other role for that? How do you usually think about that in the process? Yeah, that's also a great question. So uh, there's certain gene defects that are amenable to transplant where it's, you know, we're replacing their immune system. And so they have a clear T-cell defect, we cell where this is going to work. So IL-10, it works. XIP initially was thought not to work, but it, it does. CGD, we're replacing their immune system. And there are other ones, many, many other ones, any of the you know, skids or rags. The ones where it's not going to work are the epithelial defects. And I think those are really hard. And these, again, just are the ones who might present subtly with rash. A lot of babies have a rash. A lot of toddlers have a rash. When I say the hair defect, meaning that it looks kind of woolly or it's coarse, it has a specific, once you see it, you'll never forget. There are variations of it. The nails are abnormally shaped or they're poorly shaped or teeth abnormalities, as I said earlier. Hearing deficits, so sensory hearing loss, they're not amenable to transplant because you cannot fix the epithelial cell with a transplant, right? So there are very specific defects where it's just not going to work. And then for polygenic that's a whole nother ball game. And 
obviously there are centers and we're starting one too to do transplant for non-monogenic, very tight, very specific criteria, not all comers. This is going to be really a specific kind of thing, but it's not going to fix IBD forever in the absence of a known defect or immune deficiency. It might make someone's IBD better. This is not, this is the non-monogenic transplant, of course, I'm talking about. It might make it better and then potentially respond to therapy post-transplant, but it's not going to, in most cases, I think this is the studies have shown, the massive studies in, in Europe, which is really where they're really have done the most of it. And obviously there's centers here that are doing it. The goal really should, the goalpost should be changed a bit. It's so it's, can you have mild or moderate IBD following the transplant? Sure. If you're cured, great, but that's right. probably not realistic. So there is an allergenic and autologous transplant, right? So allergenic should be done for VO for, for monogenic. Don't give someone back their own bad immune system. <laughs> <laughs> and for IL-10, don't do it because they've been the cancer risk, right? Yeah. For adults in Europe who were, who underwent transplant and what we're going to do here and others to do, it's really, it's autologous transplant. Wow. And it's a very complicated way to condition an IBD patient. And then it could be a whole other uh, topic. And yeah. that's not a therapy in place of our currently existing medical therapy. That should be reserved for very specific refractory totally refractory disease like it's not going to be the new biologic on the market wow that's very interesting but that really should be reserved for you failed everything or i hate to make someone fail everything but it has a very specific kind of disease course yeah. For the listeners, we're not transplanting everybody. No, no, please. no, no, no. no. Oh, okay. No. We have a lot clarify. of good drugs. We have a lot yeah. of good drugs out there. Yes. Yeah. Well, this was a great topic. It's the best we, topic. We may have to do another one. I mean, I feel it's like a, yes. there's so much more to talk about. But. I hate you guys. It's just. I, I had so many questions and I, I needed to hold back and be like, oh, I know. this well, will be like a three hour, four hour episode <laughs> if I ask all my questions. <laughs> that's the best about VO. It's like a mystery. It never ends. It's constantly something good, exciting is happening. Maybe um, PBS and- should uh, pick it up. BBC. BBS, BBC. MSNBC. BBC. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> BBC, oh my God, yeah, oh my God, that'd be amazing. (laughs) So looking back at your career so far, what has been the most valuable advice you've received? And what advice do you give for our listeners? I would say the most valuable advice, and probably what I would tell listeners is do what you love. You know, life is hard. And I think if you're going to be in a research career or clinical, you know, love your patient cohort. I mean, I love my patients. I wouldn't do this if I didn't really, really, really love the VEO group or the IBD group. I think it's fascinating. I love it. It's it's always a mystery, as I just said before, but there's always something else I want to do. But I would say also surround yourself by um, a really, for people who are starting out and even advanced in your career with a mentor who is there for you or mentoring team. So I had a mentoring team because, you know, you don't necessarily have to be within a, the GI world to have a mentor. So if you have someone outside GI, just find that person and team that's going to support you selflessly and who want to work with you. And I think go for it. The other thing I would say is I have been told cannot be done or no. And I, I am very stubborn in a bad way, in a good way, but <laughs> don't take 
no, like if you really want to do this or you really think this is the right thing, that there is really a path there, go for it. And I think that's why the biggest lesson is do what you love and then go for it and get the team around you that's stronger than you to help support you. Yeah, that is great. So yeah, once again, you know, thank you so much for joining us. Any final words for our listeners? I guess I would say drink strong coffee, have some chocolate. And for VO, always call, always call a friend, never hesitate. And for the trainees, really go for it. If you love something and if it's not in your hospital and it's someplace else, reach out to whoever's doing it. And if you're told that it's too hard to be done, just do it anyway. But just get the smarter people around you. I always say I like to surround myself by people who really know what they're doing so I can learn from that way. And work with people you like. I love my team. Oh, that's that's good advice. That's awesome. But yeah, thanks again. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk again soon. This is an awesome topic. And I'm sure like, you know, you'll continue to make discoveries that'll change how we're evaluating treating these patients. So. While drinking so. coffee and eating I'm chocolate. I'm thinking what kind of coffee. I'm, I'm going to get my coffee right now. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm really, it's so honored and a pleasure to be with you guys. Thank you. Yeah, it's an honor coming. for us. Thank you. Thank you. And if you ever yeah. want um, a coffee shop, call yeah. me. Okay. Yeah. That's excellent. That's excellent. All right. We had an awesome time talking to Dr. Kelson. We want to thank her so much for her time. Um, if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at, at @bowelsounds and on Facebook at, at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. If you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would be really helpful if you did one of the following three things. One, tell one person about the podcast. Two, maybe leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover our podcast. And three, on our Buzzsprout page, There's a link to support the show by making a donation to the NASPGAN Foundation. You can also go there through www.naspgan.org. The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things that the NASPGAN Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. As always, the discussion views and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and guests and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thank you all for listening. Until next time. Bye.